Hey there, this is Emily. And this is Rosa. Welcome to the Unchecked Podcast. We are two women from two different countries who will talk about living life in their late 20s. On today's episode, we shall talk about Black Lives Matter. We want to let our listeners know that this will be a script episode and it will be different from how we have structured our episodes in the past. As much as we value spontaneity, we think this is the best way to get our points across in a concise and clear manner. We also want to acknowledge that our intention is not to detract away from the discussion that have already been had about the Black Lives Matter movement. There are so many folks out there that are doing this work every day and spreading valuable knowledge. However, our goal for today is to speak on behalf of what we're doing within the scope of our own identities and values, to stand together with the Black Lives Matter movement. And for that, it requires speaking up, challenging the anti-Black sentiments that pervade our own communities, and using our own power and privilege to do what we can during this time. Although the media has recently shifted the focus away from the movement in the past weeks, and mind you, peaceful protests are still occurring across the country, and so-called social activity in the form of posts and Instagram stories in the digital space has toned down, the fight is far from over. We acknowledge that this podcast has been long overdue, but we understand that silence is compliance, and we want to engage and continue this conversation with our listeners. Systemic injustice has pervaded the U.S. for so long, and it will continue to pervade because it has been entrenched into every part of our society. It is our generation and the generation that continues to come after us who will be critical actors to make sustainable change. And so we'll first start off talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, then move on to the history of systemic racism in the U.S. From there, we'll have segments on backgrounds between the Asian and Black community and the Latinx and Black community, along with our personal anti-racist journeys. We'll end the episode thinking about what productive allyship looks like. Know that there might be some parts in the episode that might sound like we're going through a history lesson, but... We think it's so important for our listeners to get the context and background in order to understand the social dynamics and structures that exist in America today. So whatever your intentions might be, we encourage you to listen and to think about the part you take in this movement. So we will start off by saying that we're fully committed to be anti-racist. Angela Davis said it best when she said, in a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. We shall cite as much as we can during this podcast, and we will include a list of all the books and media mentioned. Nothing that will be said will be anything new. Many have come before us who have written testaments of the Black experience in America. There's so much we can do, especially us non-Black people of color, to educate ourselves and be an ally. Many of us would not even be here if it wasn't for the Civil Rights Movement. Google Immigration Act of 1965. If you didn't know, now you know. We also want to name and remember those whose lives were taken. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Sandra Brand, George Floyd, Trevor Martin, Breonna Taylor, among many others who have had their lives taken away. Black Lives Matter is an organized movement advocating for nonviolent civil disobedience in protest against incidents of police brutality against Black people. In 2013, the movement began with the use of the hashtag Black Lives Matter on social media after the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the shooting of Black teen Trayvon Martin in February 2012. 
the movement became nationally recognized for street demonstrations following the 2014 deaths of two black men, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City. Since the Ferguson protests, participants in the movement have demonstrated against the deaths of numerous other black people by police actions while in custody. Between 2014 and 2016, the originators of the hashtag and call to action, Alicia Garza, Patrice Coolers, and Opal Tometi, expanded their project into a national network of over 30 local chapters. The overall Black Lives Matter movement is a decentralized network and has no formal hierarchy. The movement returned to national headlines and gained further international attention during the global George Floyd protests in 2020 following Floyd's death by police officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is our moral and civic duty to stand beside our community. Until we are not all free, none of us are free. We feel very strongly about this and we think we all should. We cannot progress as a society until all of us have the same rights. Before we talk about our own shared history with the Black community, we feel that it's very important for us to highlight America's history in building the systemic racism we see today. We're going to go through the origins of systemic racism and walk through how it manifests itself to today's policies and practices. The origins of structural racism in the U.S. began with the enslavement of Africans, more than 12 million Black folk of all ages being sold to a life of forced labor and dehumanization. With the backdrop and inhumane justification of economics, religion, and what others noted as the quote-unquote natural state of mankind, it persisted until the end of the Civil War. Unfortunately, that in turn only manifested in organized and structural terror that plagued the U.S., including the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, lynchings, and indentured servitude, all meant to take precarious the freedom of Black people. Jim Crow was a racial case system which operated primarily, but not exclusively, in southern and border states between 1877 and the mid-1960s. Jim Crow was more than a series of rigid anti-Black laws. It was a way of life. Under Jim Crow, Blacks were relegated to the status of second-class citizens. Jim Crow represented the legitimization of anti-Black racism. Many Christian ministers and theologians thought that whites were the chosen people, Blacks were cursed to be servants, and God supported racial segregation. And from there came the Civil Rights Movement. The movement was a mass protest against racial segregation and discrimination in the southern U.S. that came into national prominence during the 1950s. Through nonviolent protests, the movement broke the pattern of public facilities being segregated by race and achieved the most important breakthrough in equal rights legislation for Blacks and many other Americans. Since President Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971, Incarceration rates have increased, especially in the Black and Latinx populations. Nixon, Barry Goldwater, and Nixon Rockefeller advocated for harsh drug laws and severe criminal sanctions because they thought there was a strong correlation between drug addiction and crime. These claims have been prevalent in legislative enactments since the 1970s, ignoring those who argue that drug addiction should be seen as a public health issue rather than a criminal enterprise. When Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986, he criminalized drug addiction. This in turn led to the mass incarceration of mostly non-violent drug offenders, 65% of whom were Black and Latinx. 
2.5 trillion in tax dollars were pumped to fund the war on drugs. The United States incarcerates more of its citizens than any other country in the world. Thus, quote-unquote, tough-on-crime mantra and war on drugs rhetoric has led to an eruption in prison profiting. Angela Davis, Cornell West, and Talikuli name it the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex is the relationship between private businesses and government interests in connection with incarcerating U.S. citizens. The war on drugs also benefit politicians. Politicians need to be reelected, so they use the tough on crime campaign rhetoric while simultaneously accepting lucrative contributions from private prison lobby intent on increasing the stream of U.S. prisoners. The prison industrial complex also continues to benefit corporations, often to cut production costs and take advantage of cheap labor. Because of this, the prison industrial complex relies upon and continuous flow of criminals to maximize their profits. And so from this toxic mix emerges a crying stream of disappropriately black and Latinx drug offenders. So unfortunately, but not surprisingly, we also see systemic racism permeate other parts of our society. And that's due to decades-long laws and practices that have disadvantaged black communities over generations. For instance, federal mortgage lending programs post-World War II favored white Americans allowing those coming back from the war to buy housing and land cheaply, while Black Americans were strictly prohibited from buying and living in those neighborhoods. As a result, you'll see that Black Americans today, despite making up 13% of the population, own less than 1% of land in our country. All these policies have thus affected the economic vulnerability and progress of Black Americans today. From the U.S. Census Bureau, the average Black American household income is 41000 compared to 70000 among white Americans and 87000 among Asian Americans. We see the effects of structural inequity in all parts of a Black person's life. Black women are three to four times as likely as white women to die in childbirth due to a lack of access to quality health care. Black children are more likely to attend under-resourced schools because of the reliance on local property tax for funding, and Black voters are four times as likely as white voters to report difficulties in voting or engaging in politics due to laws that restrict their rights, as you might have seen in our recent elections. And there's tons more that aren't stated today. We list all these to say that inherently, slavery has not ended, but transformed itself into the complex, often eluding beast that it is today. We encourage our listeners to read up more about this topic. Books that we recommend include The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which talks about more about mass incarceration in the U.S. So You Want to Talk About Race by Yoma Ulu, How to Open Conversations About Race, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which talks about how our government policies have heavily influenced segregation in America, and my personal favorite, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, which talks about the brutal, exploitative, dare I say lucrative, convict lean system that succeeds formal slavery. We will list these books below in our podcast notes. Now that we have talked a bit of the background behind systematic racism, we're going to transition to a segment that speaks to us more personally. Emily will begin first, talking about the dynamics and share history between the Asian American and Black American community, and share her personal anti-racist journey. Thanks, Rosa. 
So as she mentioned, while talking about my commitment as an Asian American to the Black Lives Matter movement, I believe it's necessary to provide some context to the shared history between these two communities. So please know that this history, again, is not meant to detract away from the conversation. Conversely, it is meant to shed some light on both the unity and tensions between both communities in order to understand the way we, as Asian Americans, are engaging in this dialogue today. This is just a summary of our shared history. Our history is so much more complex than what could be spoken about in the confines of a single podcast. So I highly encourage our listeners to read up and do their own research if they want to learn more. So to start, recent events have sparked national conversation on the role of Asian American complicity in the face of white society. In particular, light has shed on Dao Tao, the Hmong American police officer who was complicit in George Floyd's murder. In particular, the video of Floyd's death shows Tao looking on while his partner Derek Chauvin held his knee against Floyd's neck for almost eight minutes. His reaction and cooperation with his white partner has become a symbolic reminder of Asian American participation in a culture imbued with white privilege. And as Cathay Park Hong, the author of Minor Feelings puts it, when I hear the phrase, Asians are next in line to be white, I replace the word white with disappear. Asians are next in line to disappear. We are reputed to be so accomplished and so law-abiding, we will disappear into this country's amnesiac fog. We will not be the power, but become absorbed by power, not share the power of whites, but be stooges to a white ideology that exploited our ancestors. In summation, this incident has resurfaced how we as Asian Americans have shown up or not in Americans' complex political and social context. And so I want to revisit our history to understand how that has shaped the tensions we see today. I first want to highlight the points in our history where Asian American activists in the US have stood along with our black and brown communities. And so this was first most prominent during the 1960s civil rights movement, where both groups stood together to fight for equal opportunity and the rights that we have today, including but not limited to education, employment, housing, and much more. One of the most prominent activists during this time, and you might know, is Yuri Kochiyama, a Japanese-American activist who advocated for not only reparations for Japanese-American internment camp survivors, but also fought in the civil rights movement, drawing her influence from Malcolm X. Much of the Asian-American movement in our past has actually been influenced by early examples of rejection of assimilation and self-determination that came from the Black Power movement. And many of the freedoms we have today, including voting rights protection, housing discrimination, small business protection, and interracial marriages, have been fought and won because of the civil rights movement. We can also see other examples of unified support. From Bayard Rustin, a Black American who advocated to protect the property of imprisoned Japanese Americans, to Kamaldev Chepulhade, an Indian social reformer and freedom activist, who, when traveling to the America, was subjected to Jim Crow laws and lived with Black American activists and artists. This also leads us to organizations today, such as Asians for Black Lives and Asian Americans Advancing Justice, as well as other Asian American networks that are leading demonstrations, call to actions, and workshops that are supporting the movement. However, we have also seen the marked tensions in our shared history, 
Notably, I want to share three specific examples. So one and most known would happen in 1992, the Rodney King riots. So in March of 1991, four police officers were caught on camera viciously beating Rodney King, a black motorist. Their acquittal led to riots and lootings, mainly targeting Korean-American businesses. Many connected this tension to come from a 1991 killing of Latasha Harlins, a 15-year-old black girl by Korean immigrant store owner Soon Ja-do, who shot Latasha after assuming that she was stealing orange juice. Another two cases would happen more recently in 2014. And remember, this is six years ago. One is the murder of Akai Gurley by Chinese-American police officer Pierre Liang in a Brooklyn housing project. Liang's sentence, which included probation and community service, led to massive protests and discourse among the Asian-American community. While some Asian-Americans felt themselves as scapegoats in the dialogue because of Liang's identity, others saw the incident as a direct cause of anti-Black policing tactics. And so last but not least, we also see tensions show up in the 2014 lawsuit, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. The plaintiff, a group of students who had been rejected by selective universities, claimed Harvard was discriminating against Asian Americans. They, in turn, advocated for eliminating race completely from the college application process, a direct call-out for the end of affirmative action. And to speak to the Asian American experience is also to recap the model minority myth, which is critical context to how we are portrayed against other Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Many of you may have heard this myth before, but it's also interesting to understand its history. So for some background, the myth portrays Asian Americans exactly as it sounds. Hardworking, law-abiding, well-educated, and successful citizens who pursued and accomplished the American dream. This narrative was created in the 1960s as a result of racial tensions that increased in the U.S. to disprove that racism was happening throughout the country. And so the mild minority myth is not only dangerous in its assumption, which puts Asians in a monolith and disregards the healthy wealth disparities that skews towards East Asian groups, but also assumes that with any good minority, there would be a bad minority. So while Asian Americans were seen as a prime example of making it and achieving your goals as long as you work hard, it also became a white tool to call out Black failure. So while the nation's policies, including the Madison Act of 1943 and the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965, lifted immigration restrictions and gave priority to economic status of Asian immigrants, the mainstream media also harped on the idea of Asian success. We were ineffectively used in our nation's anti-Black rhetoric. This painted a picture favoring immigrants that were surviving while stereotyping Blacks as not seceding, not because of the failure of our nation's policies, but because they were less intelligent, lazy, and all criminals. This type of thinking is still ingrained in our nation's mindset today. In summary, you have heard both acts of unity and areas of tension between our communities. While Asian Americans do face discrimination, our discrimination is inherently different from that face in the Black community. While we have seen it manifest in its most ugly forms, in particular with COVID-19, we have never witnessed the systemic dehumanization of an entire race rooting in its beginning from slavery, to segregation, to police brutality, and the racist policies that underline our society today. Work still needs to be done in our communities, and it's both backwards and forwards facing. 
we need to look back and understand our history and our stance in these complex relations. And we need to raise this awareness to stand in solidarity with our Black and Brown communities. The first thing I think about is, how does racism manifest in our daily lives? As a Chinese American, I admit that in the past, more often than not, when my relatives or friends say insensitive things about Black and Brown communities, often in passing, I have written them off as ignorance and did not speak up. Unfortunately, anti-Blackness pervades our communities. In a culture that puts light skin and European-centric features on a pedestal, we connect the Black individual to either a funny joke or a source of fear. Both U.S. and international Asian media, some of which our immigrant families rely on, have influenced many of the perceptions and attitudes we hold. To this degree, our Chinese-American community also unfortunately has in their toolbox derogatory words spoken in our main dialect to describe Black and brown people in this negative light. And so this attitude had pervaded my everyday life. From my grandmother telling me, be careful of Black people because they can steal money from you anytime. To relatives saying, I would never live in a Black neighborhood because it's just going to be dirty and filled with crime. And I realized that my silence in the past was complicity. My quietness a symbol of acknowledgement that I am inherently agreeing to everything they're saying. Although I grew up in Brooklyn, I was mostly surrounded with and lived within white and Asian circles. I was influenced by my Asian peers and my Asian family that if we kept our head down, if we worked hard and we stayed non-controversial, we would make it. It was not our goal to engage or speak out against injustice. Being quiet and complicit made you closer in line with the white folk who made good grades rather than the black folk who made trouble. But I recognize now that these were all excuses. Excuses that release me, the responsibility of having to do any type of work and benefit from the white system of America. I'm actively working through and reflecting on my own internalized racism and belief structures. And to do this, I'm reading up and taking my personal and private actions. Talking about this issue in the podcast is one of the ways I'm learning about my ancestors' history with Black America. And so here are some questions that could actually help Asian Americans question our prejudices every day. This includes, what am I seeing being portrayed in Chinese or Asian media that aligns with anti-Black sentiments? What conversations am I hearing with my family and friends that use mass generalizations? What are my own perceptions when I enter Black and Brown communities and or interact with Black and Brown folk? We need to be active in breaking apart all preconceived notions in our mind and work our way into understanding why they have manifested here in the first place. The other day, a close family member used a derogatory word for Black folk in conversation in such casual terms, and I called them out for it. But it's not a simple solution. I can't just say to this family member, oh no, that's not an appropriate term to use because of all the structural racism and history behind this offensive term. And they will suddenly understand the systemic racism at its core. No, it's actually a much longer, arduous process. It requires speaking out frequently, often, again and again, until they realize the weight of their words. Complex terms become lost in language when defining context. And while Cantonese is not my strong suit, I have been trying to educate my relatives in any way I can, including sharing translated articles and texts on the Black Lives Matter movement and calling them out or in during conversations. To be honest, I didn't want to share anything about Black Lives Matter on our podcast. I wanted to have more private conversations, fearing that putting this on a public platform will be a mistake, offend folks, 
and tarnish this image of me as one of not to stoke the flames. But this is not what it will be for me. Speaking up, learning, and perhaps even failing in the process is one of the first of many steps in the path to being anti-racist. To all my Asian American friends out there, I want us to acknowledge how much some of us have benefited from the structural injustices against Black folk. Some of us may have become white adjacent. We have learned to navigate a society that focuses on rewarding white dominant norms and adherence to law. I admit I'm the product of that. While I am on my own personal journey to unmask my own internalized beliefs, I encourage our listeners to think about their own. I encourage all listeners to understand, talk about, and reflect on what has gotten us this far. If you disagree with what I've just said so far, let's have a conversation together. And until we can acknowledge and take action from the science in our community, we will not receive full liberation. For our liberation is so deeply entwined and connected with that of Black Americans. And to that, I'm going to have Rosa talk about her point of view on her community's relationship to the Black Lives Matter movement. To start off, I would like to say that we have failed to face our anti-Blackness that exists in our community. As Latinx, we're descendants of many countries. According to the Pew Research Center, one quarter of U.S. Latinx identify as Afro-Latino, Afro-Caribbean, or of African descent with roots in Latin America. Many in our community benefit from the privilege or illusion of proximity to whiteness without acknowledging the death of our own African diaspora. We have been raised in families who refer to blackness in a diminutive way. Morenita, negrita, pietita. We have remained silent when our tias have encouraged us to partner with people who have lighter skin than we do so we can mejorar la raza. We have hated ourselves for our skin color, hair texture, our curves, and our accents. I still remember when people used to wake up two hours early to go to high school just so they can straighten their hair. Our faith traditions, the schools we attend, the families we love, the music we listen to are anchored in blackness, but we obscure that with whiteness. Racism has influenced our own American experience. Our country was founded on stolen Native American land and the stolen labor of the enslaved. Generations of injustice have left us with prison systems that disappropriately cage and dehumanize black and brown people, systems, laws, and socially expected behaviors that reinforce this basic idea. As a non-black Peruvian with a white and indigenous background, I used to believe that white people were the only ones who could be racist while people of color stood united against oppression. That changed when George Silverman, a non-black Latinx of Peruvian descent, killed Trayvon Martin. He is joined by Philando Castile killer Jerome Janes, a non-black Latino of Mexican descent. Before Sandra Brand died in her jail cell in 2015, she was handcuffed by a non-black Latina police officer. These people are not simply bad apples, nor are they anomalies. They sit at the far end of the spectrum of anti-blackness in many Latinx communities. They are connected to the anti-black statements made by our abuelas or tios, and of the images we see in telenovelas and Spanish language news, and of the racial case system Latin America countries were built on. Now, non-black Americans are reckoning with our anti-blackness 
yet again due to the police killing of George Floyd. A black man who died as a Minneapolis police officer knelt on his neck. As the U.S. becomes less white and expands into infinite hues of brown, non-black people of color must understand our role in upholding white supremacy and anti-blackness. As the fastest growing ethnic group in the U.S., Latinx people in particular must acknowledge the legacy of anti-blackness in our communities. The first place we need to start is undoing this white supremacy is at home. Much like the U.S., Latin American countries were built on a system of white supremacy, anti-blackness, and anti-indigenous. Four million Africans were taken hostage and enslaved during the transatlantic slave trade, were brought to Brazil, ten times the number of people human trafficked to the United States. An important distinction when thinking about how Latinx people are rarely portrayed as black in popular media. Unlike the U.S., however, rather than building a clear one-drop rule system of white supremacy that discouraged racial mixing, Latin American colonizers embarked on a mission of mestizaje, or forced mixing between Spanish colonizers and indigenous and black people. This created a complicated racial casta system that placed white Spaniards and light-skinned mestizos on the top of indigenous and black people on the bottom. This racial case system isn't relegated to the past, it seeps into our media, our literature, and the comments of our family member. Go to Telemundo to see what I mean. Comfort can be difficult, but it's important for us as non-black Latinx to check our families on colorist comments about pelo malo, bad or curly hair, or dark skin, and open a dialogue with our families about anti-blackness. Otherwise, we contribute to violent words and actions against black people. Sometimes language barriers can make it even more difficult to explain anti-blackness to our families. I will attach a list of terms in Spanish from conversations made by Melba Martinez. Just because we face similar struggles doesn't mean that they are the same, nor does it give non-black Latinx any ownership over black culture or black stories. When celebrities like Gina Rodriguez, Fat Joe, Jennifer Lopez say the N-word, known black Latinx are complicit in a system that benefits us at the expense of black people. When we hear comments like, I can say because I'm a person of color, or we're all black and indigenous anyway, it is important to take the time to ask friends and family members to think about how harmful these statements are. I came from a very politically involved indigenous family. Not yet, no matter how quote-unquote woke you are, you can always learn more. We need to support and uplift Afro-Latinx voices on and offline rather than centering non-black, non-indigenous Latinx voices, who are mostly the minority in our countries anyway. Afro-Latinx people have existed since Latin America came to be and have created a majority of the Latinx culture we love to consume today. Cumbia, reggaeton, urbano music, bachata, samba, and more, of, and more, all of them stem from black communities within Latin America. Yet many modern reggaeton stars are white Latinx, or even Spaniards. A little to no recognition is given to the Afro-Latinx communities these genres belong to. This erasure goes beyond culture. It seeps into the political sphere and into social justice spaces. While black undocumented immigrants only make up 7% of people living without legal citizenship in the United States, they make up 20% of those facing deportation on criminal grounds. 
many of whom are Afro-Latinx. When we, as non-Black Latinx, center the conversation and narrative about Latinidad on ourselves, we make it impossible to address the intersecting oppressions faced by, Lat by Afro-Latinx people and erase Black Latinx life and experiences. While posting an Instagram graphic or holding a protest sign that says Latinx for Black life may be very intention, it implies that Afro-Latinx people don't exist and contributes to the erasure of Black Latinx people. So as we wrap up this episode, we're going to talk about what active allyship looks like. As you can think about your own role in the movement, here are some reflection questions that we have found helpful in the realm of how we could be more productive rather than passive allies. This includes, what are some biases that I hold? Am I putting more effort into showing others that I'm not racist rather than being actively anti-racist? Am I okay with engaging in conversations that are only comfortable and convenient? Am I thinking about my own identity and cultural history and how it intersects with a black and brown community? And last but not least, am I only intending to be public in my intentions and not also taking other actions privately, which are not posted on social media or any form of media? We encourage you to donate to causes if you have the means. We encourage you to demand justice for all Black lives that have been lost. We encourage you to have these conversations with your friends and family, and not in what you feel will be the most comfortable environments but also know that there will be points of contention. We encourage you to listen, to listen, to listen, to reflect, and to understand. Of course, we know it might be a journey for some folks, but we feel it's more helpful to embark on this path, however challenging it might be, or however many mistakes you might make. Things like saying the wrong thing, for example. These conversations with your friends, your family, is not going to be perfect and never will be. But we're not asking for perfect from you. We're asking for progress. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today in this podcast. We hope you were able to take away from this a little bit of knowledge and perspective on the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the intersection between Black, Asian, and Latinx identity. Again, we will include our resources, books, and articles for our listeners to learn more in our podcast notes. Until next episode, see you then.